0: We invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4 this morning. Philippians chapter 4. When Jesus was on the earth, He spent much of His time casting out demons and binding Satan. He neutralized the power of Satan and his demons. And uh, that's because the power of Satan was very prevalent during His days. Satan was trying to stop what Jesus was trying to do. And while the influence of Satan and his demons may be less noticeable now than it was in the days of Jesus, his work, that is the work of Satan, is still evident. What kind of responsibility do we have against Satan? Paul gives the answer in Ephesians 6, verses 10-19, and the answer is to put on the whole armor of God. The purpose of the armor is not offensive. It's not to go on the offensive against Satan and to defeat him, to crush his head, in the words of Genesis 3. Even the sword of the Spirit seems to be primarily a defensive weapon. And the reason I know that, that all this armor is meant to be defensive, is because four times in that passage in Ephesians 6, Paul says to stand firm or to resist. The job of the Christian when it comes to Satan, is to stand firm or resist. Listen just to a few verses in that passage. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the, of the devil. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything, to stand firm. And then the very next verse, stand firm therefore. And then he goes through the various pieces of the armor. You see, as a Christian, you will be attacked in the world. In the world in which we live, because this world is in rebellion against God. And your job is not to defeat the world. You're not your job is not to defeat Satan and his demons. Your job is simply to hold your ground. And to do it all and do do it all the way until the end. Paul picks up on a similar theme here in Philippians chapter four verses one through nine and he's going to show us this morning that as believers we must stand firm in the Lord in the Lord. we must hold our ground. So let's read our passage for this morning and then we'll we'll look into each verse. Philippians chapter 4 beginning with verse one. This is the word of God. therefore my beloved brethren whom I long to see, my joy and crown in this way, Stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Eodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women, who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise... Dwell on these things, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. As believers, we are called to stand firm in the Lord. That's the main command of this passage. Stand firm in the Lord. Notice the very first word in verse 1. Therefore, Paul is pointing back to something. Remember, Paul has been saying that his greatest goal in all of, all of life is to know Christ. In chapter 3, he said that all the things that were once gained to him, all the things that were once gained, they're now counted as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. Paul was pressing on toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus when that pursuit of the knowledge of Christ would be realized to a greater degree. But Paul's greatest desire in all of life was to know Christ. And he wanted to know Him more fully. And at the end of chapter 3, Paul urged believers to follow his example as he raced toward that finish line. Believers needed to continue on until the end. They should never give up. They needed to persevere all the way until the end. And now in chapter 4, he continues with that idea, but he expands on it even more. In chapter 4, he tells us as believers that we must stand firm in the Lord. Changes the metaphor from a racing one to really a battle one, where we are on the front lines of the battle and the enemy is about to attack. Our job is not to defeat all the enemies. Our job is to stand our ground, to stand firm in the Lord. And so here's the main command in verse 1. He he gives these loving statements about his his um, his brethren here his his uh, fellow believers. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown. In this way, stand firm in the Lord. You can see Paul's deep concern for the believers in Philippi. He calls them my beloved brethren, and at the end of the verse, my beloved whom I long to see. He had a deep concern for their spiritual well-being. And this is going to become clearer over the next two weeks as we look at the last two passages in the book of Philippians. That Paul has a deep love for these people and wants to see them grow. He wants to see them in person again. He calls them, in the middle of verse 1, my joy and crown. Paul's accomplishments could be measured not in... Uh, some kind of banner that he had, not in the number uh, of, uh, of souls that he had won to Christ, but in in people themselves. He, he his accomplishments were measured in changed lives. Paul said to the believers in Corinth in Second Corinthians three two, "You are our letter of recommendation. You want a re- recommendation for whether our ministry is from God? You are. You believers in Corinth are our letter." written on our hearts, known and read by all men. People can see that your lives have been changed and that's proof that God has been working through us in you. So stand firm, beloved brethren. Notice that he doesn't say, settle down as a Christian. Settle down. Enjoy a life of ease and comfort. Don't worry about the sin that will plague you. He doesn't say anything like that. Instead, he says, stand firm, both to the Ephesians and to the Philippians. Paul says, Believers must stand firm. So, how do we do this? What does it mean to stand firm in the Lord? How is this accomplished? I think verses 2 through 9 give us a window into what the answer is to how we stand firm. Verses 2 through 9 give us five supporting commands for how believers can stand firm. Number one, live in harmony with one another. Live in harmony with one another verses 2 and 3. Paul addresses these two women here. I urge, verse 2, Iodia and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Is it possible that two mature Christians can have a disagreement? Paul's not talking about two new converts here, is he? In fact, we know that because verse 3 says, tells us that these are women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the Gospel. They've stood alongside me when we've sought to advance the Gospel. These two beloved women who have been a part of the ministry for a long time, they have a disagreement. They were apparently members at this church at Philippi for quite a long time. And notice what Paul does in order to settle the disagreement. He doesn't choose a side and say, you know, is right. Syntyche, you need to get Right? He doesn't choose a side he he recognizes that he is far removed from the situation he doesn't fully understand what's going on he's just heard a report that these two ladies are at odds with one another so instead of picking a side he he takes he he um suggests that a mediator be brought in someone that's close to the situation and who knows what's going on who can who can adequately look at both sides and be able to to come to a conclusion. Notice the phrase there in verse uh, 2, live in harmony in the Lord. This live in harmony, this phrase that's translated from the Greek is the same phrase that's used in chapter 2, verse 2. Look back there quickly. It might just be across your page, but chapter 2, verse 2. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, or we could say by living in harmony. It's the same phrase as is used in chapter 2, verse 2. So here's what he's saying. You two need to come together and be of the same mind. Live in harmony. He's saying fix your eyes on what you agree to. What is the most important thing with regard to our relationship as believers? Fix your eye on that thing, both of you, and put these other differences aside. Now, he wasn't suggesting that these other differences were unimportant. But Paul is talking about them coming into an agreement together around the truth of God's Word, and specifically what is most important when it comes to the ministry of God's Word. Now, whenever Paul mentions agreement or harmony, he uses the phrase, in the Lord, like he does here in verse 2. In the Lord. See, agreement and unity are not helpful on their own. We don't just agree. We don't become just a bunch of intolerant people uh, or I or, or should say tolerant people where we just agree to everything. Hey, we're just going to agree, okay? Let's let's just have all the same views on everything. That's not, not what Paul's calling for. He's calling about agreement in the Lord according to what the Lord desires. And in order to settle this difference, Paul addresses another member to act as a mediator. And we see him in verse 3. Indeed, true companion. I ask you to help these women. Now, it's not clear who this true companion is. He could have been talking to Luke or Silas. Uh, some scholars believe that he was talking about a person whose name literally was companion. In the Greek, it would be Syzygos. It's the Greek word for companion. So he could have been saying, true Syzygos, or you whose name is Syzygos, companion, you are true to your name. You are a, a, a good friend and, and, a, and a good mediator in this case. But whoever the companion is, whether it is any of these men or someone else, what we do know is that the readers would understand who Paul was talking about. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been so vague. And his responsibility was to help them. Help these women who are not living in harmony. They're supposed to be coming together and worship together. And they need, to, they need to live in harmony. So help them. Help, help them come to understand the other side of the conflict. Become the peacemaker between them. There's responsibility for us as church members to agree on the main things. We need to live in harmony in the Lord. It's the only way that we can move toward a common goal. If we keep getting sidetracked by all these lesser goals that are unimportant or less important to the mission of Jesus Christ, which is to make disciples and to teach them, If we get off track, then we're not going to be able to move together towards our common goal, to know Christ and to make Him known. Live in harmony in the Lord. Number two, here's a second way in which we stand firm in the Lord. And it's found in verse 4. It is to find your joy in the Lord no matter what. Find your joy in the Lord no matter what. Familiar verse here. Rejoice in the Lord always again i will say rejoice notice the content of our joy it is in the lord rejoice in the lord this is not calling for the holy spirit is not calling us to put on a, a plastic smile or ignore all the ignorant uh, or ignore all the evils of this world but rather to take your joy in what you know to be true about the lord he's calling us to find our greatest contentment and our greatest happiness in the Lord. Because we have read the first page that God owns it all, and we've read the last page that God's going to have the victory. And So we can rejoice in that. No matter what kind of troubles come in our in our lives, no matter what kind of trouble comes in our path, we can rejoice in the Lord. Is that true for us as Christians? Absolutely. I love what Jesus says in Luke 10.20. It really helps us to put perspective on our lives. Do not rejoice that spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Friend, the reason that we can have joy no matter what is because we see the bigger picture. We see that our names are written in heaven. And all the trouble that we face in this world will be done away with. Rejoice in the Lord. Listen to Don Carson on this. He said, Should we not of all people take joy in this life and what we have promised for the next? Certainly our 70 years on this earth can be filled with difficulty, but we have eternity waiting for us, secured by the Son of God. We will see Him face to face and spend eternity with Him. If we fail to respond with joy and gratitude when we are reminded of these things, then it is either because we have not properly grasped the depth of the abyss of our own sinful natures and of the curse from which which we have been freed by Jesus, or because we have not adequately surveyed the splendor of the heights to which we have been raised. We of all people should be able to take joy in all of our circumstances. Rejoice in the Lord. Notice how often we should do this. Rejoice in the Lord. How often? Always. At all times. Despite the physical ailments that you face, despite the family conflicts, despite the job loss, despite the persecution, the suffering, and even the loss of loved ones, we as Christians can always maintain a spirit of joy in the Lord. No matter what may come to you, keep on rejoicing at all times think this would have rung true from the lips or from the pen of Paul? Do you think people would have said, Paul, you're telling us to be joyful? What about you? Do you think anyone would have said that? Would have criticized him in that way? Paul was a man who practiced what he preached. You Think back to the time that he first met the people in Philippi. He came by the river where the ladies were meeting and they were praying and he led Lydia to Christ and then What happens? He and Silas get taken into prison. And what are Paul and Silas doing in prison? They're singing praises to God. They're showing joy in the darkest of circumstances. The city of Philippi would have known very well that Paul was a man who was filled with joy no matter the circumstances. And so they would have been happy to follow along with this. Notice the last part of verse 4. Again, I will say, rejoice. What does repetition indicate? Repetition indicates importance. We repeat things to our children in order that they understand the critical points. We may give them a long paragraph, what we want them to do, but we repeat the important points. And that's what Paul is doing here. Rejoice in the Lord always. And I'm going to say it one more time so that you understand. Rejoice. This is important. This is not something that comes naturally to us. It's something that we have to work towards. So rejoice, rejoice in the Lord and do it always. Number three, how can we stand firm in the Lord? Number three, be known for gentleness. Verse 5, be known for gentleness. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. First, the command. We ought to be known for gentle. We ought to be gentle. Live your life in such a way that people eventually recognize that you are a gentle person. Gentleness involves giving up our personal rights in order to show consideration to others. And this is a far cry from what is honored in our culture, is it not? Our culture loves people who are independent. Just take a a view of some of the most popular movies that are out there. It's about some rogue who goes out on his own and just attacks everybody and he's the victor right it's it's people who are independent who are brash and bold not gentle but what god is telling us through his holy spirit and the writing of paul is that we ought to be known for gentleness and we ought to be known for giving up our personal rights in order to show compassion to other people so how can we, we be known for being gentle how can we be known for being gentle Let your gentleness be known. How can we be known for that? Well, we can't go around trumpeting our gentleness. I'm a gentle person. It's going to be ignored, right? Instead, we have to actually, and here's something very simple, be a gentle person. We have to be a gentle person. Are you gentle? Would the people who know you best describe you as gentle? The people who live with you the closest, would they describe you as a gentle person? If the the closest person with whom you live rated you on a scale from 1 to 10, 1 being extremely harsh and impatient and 10 being extremely gentle, where would you fall? If you want an example of what this looks like, you have to look no further than Jesus Christ in chapter 2. He was a gentle human. He came and he gave up his own personal rights in order to show compassion to other people, did Jesus have the right to call down 10,000 angels and destroy all those people who are mocking him? Absolutely. But what was he trying to do? He wanted to show compassion to them. Even on the cross, he asked for God to forgive them. Why can we work at this gentleness? Why can we work at this? Why should we work at this? Look at the end of verse. Five. The Lord is near. Now, it comes across as a separate sentence, but I think Paul puts it here for a purpose, that it's connected. Remember, the verses were added later, so this would have all just been one paragraph from verse 4 to verse 7. But but the Lord is near can either be connected to verse 5 or verse 6. Some scholars suggest that it's connected to both. But I would suggest to you that it's connected to verse 5. Here's why we can be gentle with other people. Here's why we can give up our personal rights in order to show compassion to them. It's because the Lord is near. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean that the Lord's coming is near? It could mean that. Or it could mean that he's, his presence is actually with us. And I, I, I take it to mean that second one. It could mean that, I think it means that the Christ is present with us. That is, he is with us all the time. Remember in Matthew twenty eight verse twenty, I will never I'm sorry, that was that's the different. That's Hebrews thirteen five. I will never leave you nor forsake you. But in Matthew twenty eight, twenty it says, And lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. Jesus says, I'm always going to be with you. And the way that he is with us is through his Holy Spirit, called the Spirit of Jesus by Paul and other places. And so we know that Christ is always watching us, and because of that, we can be and ought to be gentle to other people. We ought to give up our personal rights in order to show compassion to them. Stand firm in the Lord, believers. And you do this by living in harmony with one another, by finding joy in the Lord no matter what, by being known for your gentleness. And then number four, how can we stand firm? Number four, pray instead of worry. Verses 6-7, through pray instead of worry. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. There's a command here at the beginning of the verse. Notice what it is. Be anxious for nothing. Another way another way to say that is don't be anxious. Don't worry. As Christians, we are not to worry. So how do we do this? How can we be people who who, who don't worry? And the answer comes at the end of the verse. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So there's two commands in one sentence. Don't be anxious, but let your request be made known to God. These are two commands that are connected. And it's connected with this conjunction, but this relationship between worry and prayer Letting your request be made known to God is a contrasting relationship. That is, worrying is the opposite of praying. We either pray or we worry. We either worry or we pray. When we're anxious, we worry. The reason that these are connected is that both of them have to do with trusting in God, or I should say, trusting in God, or or not trusting in God, right? When we worry, we fail to trust in God. When we pray, we're totally dependent upon God and what He's going to do. When we pray, we express our trust in God and in His sovereign power. Notice the scope of the things in life that we should pray instead of worry about. Verse 6, be anxious for nothing. So what kind of things ought we to worry about? Nothing. There's nothing that we ought to worry about. This goes back to Matthew 6 when Jesus says, why why do you worry about your life? Can you you add even a day to your life by worrying? Of course not. God clothes the grass of the field. And why would He not clothe you? Why would He not take care of you? See, we we are not to worry. So there's the scope of the worrying. We ought to worry in nothing. And what ought we, we to pray in? Notice the second part of verse 6. But in everything... By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So, we ought to pray about everything. I love to be around Christians who just pray about everything. They have a little thing going on, something that seems in some cases very insignificant, and they pray about it. And they're just constantly talking to God about everything in life, not just the big things. This is the type of, of, of life we ought to live as Christians. Now, I, I often emphasize in our church that we need to spend most of our time praying for spiritual things. If you study the prayers of Paul, you'll see that he doesn't pray a whole lot for physical things. And so that means the primary thing that we need to be praying for are spiritual things. But when I say that, you might understand me to say that we should never pray for physical things at all. But here we have a direct command. That we ought to be praying for everything. In everything, let your requests be made known to God. Notice the nature of our prayer there in verse 6. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. When there is a moment of quiet, what is the thing that troubles you the most? What is it that's troubling you right now? Does it have something to do with your family or your finances or perhaps your relationship with God or your loneliness? What is it that troubles you most? Whatever that thing is right now for you, that is probably the thing that you spend the most time worrying about. And instead of worrying, you ought to be bringing these things before God with thanksgiving. Do you remember what the psalmist says in Psalm 100, verse 4? Enter into His gates with lots of requests and demands and explanations of your troubles. Is that how it goes? Enter His gates with what? With thanksgiving and into His courts with praise. When we pray to God, it ought to be a matter of thanksgiving. We come into... His court, like we would come into the court of a king, not just rolling out of our our list of all of our problems. Here, God fixed them. But especially at our scheduled times of prayer, we ought to begin with thanksgiving and praise for who God is and what He's doing, even in our trouble. Thank You, God, that You are sovereign over all these things. When You come before God, You may be extremely distressed, but a proper Christian perspective, back to verse 4, is to do what? Rejoice in the Lord always. A proper Christian perspective demands that you come to God with an attitude of joy and thanksgiving. We make our request to God with an attitude of thanksgiving for what He's done for us and what He is even doing in us now, even in our trouble. And notice the promise that God gives to us in verse 7. And the peace of God. That is, when you do this, when you stop worrying and start praying with thanksgiving, then the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Are you inwardly distressed over some difficulty that you're facing right now? Is your distress like a raging sea during a thunderstorm? Wouldn't you love for that knot in your stomach to go away? Because you're so anxious about this situation. Wouldn't you love to reduce your depression and consternation over this trouble? The Holy Spirit is teaching us this morning through His Word that if we take those things that are causing that distress and let them be known to God, then God will do what in verse 7? He will give us His peace this inner sense of tranquility. He will make your life as calm as a lake when you can see your reflection. Isn't that what you want? Not only will your praying result in peace from God, but notice the end of the verse, verse 7, and it will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It will protect you, I believe, from further worrying. If you are a, a chronic worrier you need to hold on tight to these verses. And you need to remind yourself of them often. Some of you by nature are given to that sort of thing. And the rest of us do it often if we're honest with ourselves. And so we all need to take this to heart. But some of you need to to take this to heart more seriously. Recognize that God promises His peace to you when you are anxious in nothing. Nothing. When you pray about these things with thanksgiving, He's going to give you His peace. Then verses 8 and 9, number 5. How do we stand firm in the Lord? Number 5. Pursue spiritual excellence. Pursue spiritual excellence. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence, And if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. As Christians, part of standing firm in the Lord is pursuing spiritual excellence. And spiritual excellence starts where, according to this verse? It starts in the, notice the end of the verse, dwell on these things or meditate on these things. So where does spiritual excellence start? It starts in the mind. Spiritual excellence doesn't just come about. Instead, we need to fill up our minds that inspire the worship of God and the service of others. This is what we are to do as Christians. Spiritual excellence doesn't happen simply by doing a list of things. Spiritual excellence starts in the mind. Notice the main command at the end of verse 8. we can drive this point home. Dwell, meditate on these things. Ponder these things, as the margin of my Bible says. Christian, you are what you think. You are what you think. If you think evil thoughts, if you think heretical thoughts, then you will live evilly. You will live heretically. But if you think holy thoughts, if you think God's thoughts after Him, then you're going to live a holy life. And that's why it's so critical to be in the Word of God, to be renewed in the spirit of your mind as you're being transformed through the Word of God. That's why it's so important to be in the Word of God through reading the Scripture together, through memorization of Scripture, under the sound of preaching. So, if we're going to pursue spiritual excellence, what kinds? of of things ought we to be dwelling on? What things should we, should we be putting into our minds so that our lives put out these holy, these holy things, these excellent things? Well, first of all, whatever is true. <coughs> whatever is true. Whatever is moral. <coughs> Much of what our culture offers and applauds is immoral. And what we're looking for are things that are true, to fill up our minds with things that are true. Secondly, what is honorable? Things that are serious and holy and lofty, things that are opposite of vulgar. These are the types of things that we ought to be putting in our minds. What tr- whatever is true, whatever is honorable. Next, whatever is right or righteous, whatever is just, the opposite of wicked, whatever is pure. Fourthly, that is what is holy and chaste and innocent. And then, fifthly, whatever is lovely. Things that are pleasing to God. Things that in the Old Testament would be described as things that are pleasing in His sight or a sweet aroma to God. These are the types of things that are lovely. Then next, whatever is of good repute. It's just another way of saying whatever is commendable. Something that could be commended by us as Christians. Whatever is is something to be admired. These are the types of things that we ought to be dwelling on. And then Paul changes his his uh, form, his parallelism from whatever is to, notice verse 8, if there is any. And he does this two times. If, the, if there is any. So he's been saying whatever is, whatever is, whatever is. And then he says if there is any. And I think Paul effectively is summarizing the first six things. He's saying all those things that are lovely, true, just, honorable, all those things, they can be summarized in these two. Whatever is excellent and whatever is worthy of praise. But instead of saying whatever, he says if there is any. And I think the reason he says it in this way is he saying that these kinds of things require discernment? That in order for us to find out what is excellent, what is worthy of praise, we need to we need to use discernment. If there is anything that is. So take the object or the thing that you're thinking about that whether it's praiseworthy or excellent, and determine if it is or not. And so how how can we do this? How can we evaluate something that's Maybe not clear in the Scriptures. Not clear whether this is something that's excellent or praiseworthy. How can we know? Well, I think Paul gives an example to hold out in front of the believers for them to see. Look at verse 9. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in Me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. If you want to see what it looks like to live this way, Philippians... Look at my life, Paul says. I have lived in a manner consistently with what I am commending to you. That I thought on holy things. I thought on things that led to the worship of God and the service of other people. Watch my example. This goes along with what he's been saying in chapter 4 and what he will say at the end of chapter 4. What he's been saying in chapter 3 and what he's going to say at the end of chapter 4. So, spiritual excellence starts in the mind. And then secondly, verse 9, spiritual excellence requires a godly example. We need to have a worthy leader that we can follow, that we can watch his life or her life and be able to say, yes, they are able to approve what is excellent. They know how to discern what is praiseworthy. They fill up their minds with things that are true and right and honorable and holy and just and lovely and commendable. And that's the kind of person that I'm going to follow. So, if this seems like very cloudy, I don't know if I can be able to discern what is excellent and praiseworthy, then find a godly example that you can follow. Find a worthy leader. Things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Paul says. Mimic my example. And here's the promise. Notice, this is great. Verse, The end of verse 9. And the God of peace will be with you. Do you remember the promise in verse 7? The peace of God that, passes all con- that, that surpasses all comprehension will guard your heart. You're going to have the peace of God if you're not anxious and you pray with thanksgiving. Here, there's a different promise. Instead of having the peace of God, what do we get? The God of peace. It's one thing to have the peace of God... But it's another thing to have the God of peace. And here's what we have promised to us as believers when we pursue excellent things. That the God of peace will be with us. Isn't that what we want the most? When we go through these tough times in life, when we go through these inexplicable inexplicable moments, do we not want nothing? Do we not want anything more than for God to be with us. This is what God promises to us as believers. Christians, we are called to stand firm in the Lord all the way until the end. And we do this by living in harmony with other believers, by finding our joy in Christ no matter what, by being known for gentleness, by praying instead of worrying, and by pursuing spiritual excellence. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this very practical passage that just gives a lot of structure to the things that that many times for us as Christians are cloudy. We we tend to, including myself, overcomplicate the Christian life. And sometimes we bring it down to a list of things that we've seen work in the past and we try to follow that list. And sometimes that's okay as long as the list is based on the Scripture, but but Lord, You have made it very clear. Our primary responsibility as a Christian is to know Christ and to stand firm in the Lord. And we do this by living as faithful believers within the context of a local church. And we pray that You'd help us to be able to pursue these things. Lord, I have seen some clear defects in my own life as I've thought about this passage this week. And so I pray that You would help me to to advance and to repent of the sin that I have committed against You. Lord, I pray the same for each person here. That you would You would draw them to Yourself and help them to see the great glory of having a clean slate, being right with You. And Lord, if there is anyone here who does not know Jesus Christ, You would help them to understand that clearly today, we pray in Jesus' name.